Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Hebrews chapter 2, be in verses 14 to 15 this morning. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you. You can feel free to take that home with you if you really don't have a Bible. Um, we would love for you to have that. That's our gift to you. Merry Christmas. Um, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. When I was a kid, I was fearless. Some would say stupid, but I would say fearless. It's the word I prefer to use. I bet all of us have stories about when we were kids, some of the senseless things that we would do. Uh, I think one of the most senseless things, you can see it when you get on the swing set at the playground. The kids will swing back as far as they can, as high as they can, until there's slack in the chain. And then the chain snaps tight as they swing through, and that's the only fun way to do it. But that's not enough. Once you get to the end on the other side, you have to then just sort of let go of the seat, you know, and fall down. We were on the swing set not that long ago, and we were having a jumping contest, how far out we could jump from the swings. And I'm amazed at how, when I was a kid, I used to swing really high and just let it go as far as I possibly could. And now I think about how my knees are going to feel when I hit the ground, you know, like, it just, there's a, a fear growing up in me. Or how about when you're riding your bike? When I was a kid, we lived at the top of a hill, and so either way I had to go, I had to go downhill to my friend's house on either side. And so I, I remember going down, and the, the courageous thing was to ride without any hands, obviously. But then that got, you know, I got desensitized to that pretty quickly, and so I started, you know, putting my feet on the seats, on the seat and on the bar and in the middle and sort of standing up, riding it like a skateboard essentially with my hands on the, on, the, on the handlebars, and occasionally just sort of let go of the handlebars to see if I could keep my balance going downhill. All of this was, mind you, in the days where we didn't wear helmets at all. One rock in the road, and I would just have face-planted and just ended my life probably right there. But there's a fearlessness that comes with being a kid because we really don't know what death is. We really don't think about it as children. Anybody that we knew that died was either dying of old age or from some reason that we didn't really know or that wasn't told to us. And so we didn't really connect the two together, that our carelessness and our, our freedom of, of you know, excitement and things like that would, could result in tragic consequences. But as we get older, obviously, we start to think about these things a lot more, and perhaps it changes things about the way we live. Maybe we adopt a new diet, we get a flu shot, maybe, or whatever kind of vaccine that might come along, or perhaps there's things that we don't do, we don't ride our bicycles downhill, or we just stop riding bicycles altogether, we don't ride, a car, ride in a car without putting on our seatbelt. As we get closer, or past our, all of our Christmas traditions and things like that that ended yesterday, we sort of turn towards Resurrection Sunday coming, right? The church really lives on two holidays. Uh, we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate Easter literally every Sunday. That's the reason that we come together on Sunday rather than worshiping on Saturday is precisely because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And we remember that every single Sunday. And so as we have been focusing for the last few weeks on the incarnation of Jesus and His coming to earth, we now obviously turn our attention from just the incarnation to what it means. Because without Easter, 
Christmas makes no sense whatsoever. And so with that in mind, we're going to take a look at why Jesus came to die and what I think it might tell us about the way we live, and it might give us some hope to live life maybe a little bit more like we did when we were children. Let's look at our passage of text this morning in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, the vast majority of the book is telling you all of the reasons why Jesus is better than everything you've ever experienced. Basically, the entire book is one step after another of telling you why Jesus is better. The title of the book in our English Bibles is somewhat generic. It just says, To the Hebrews. But we're pretty sure that this book was written by a former Jew to a community of formerly Jewish people, mainly because there's so much Jewish ritual packed throughout it that you'd think the person that wrote it was from something of a Jewish background. But it also seems the author knows exactly who he's writing to, because the group of people that he's talking to, he tells at the end of the letter to pray for them that he might come to them again. So it's obvious that he has an audience in mind, a specific group of people that he's writing to. But there are many times throughout the letter uh, uh, that he writes about temptation that they have to fall away from their confession of the Lord Jesus Christ and turn back to Judaism. And he's discouraging them all along the way of doing that. Because he says, look, Jesus is better than anything that you could turn back to. Don't leave life of Christianity and turn back to Judaism. But why are they wanting to do that? Well, it's because there's outside pressures that are tightening on them, like persecution mainly, coming from the outside, threatening to kill them. He reminds them in Hebrews 10, 32 and 33, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. This is back when they first became Christians. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Then he encourages them just a few chapters later in 13.13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So he's he's encouraging them, because of Jesus, let's, let's, let's go outside. Let's face the world around us that wants to persecute us. Let's just go out there and endure it because Jesus endured it. So throughout the letter, they're reminded that the Christian life comes with hardships. It's fraught with difficulties and challenges and even persecution. But the encouragement is to endure and don't return to the former life, which in their case is Judaism. Now that brings us to the passage that we're we're looking at this morning, it brings it into focus. And I want you to picture in your mind an underground church. A church that is, is meeting together silently. They, they sing together. They sing softly. There are no instruments that they sing with. 
And the main reason that there are no instruments and that they sing softly so that their neighbors don't hear, because otherwise they might call the police. They meet on Sunday early in the morning before people get up from bed or perhaps late at night after they go to bed so that they're, they can avoid suspicion. Every shadow that passes by their window could potentially be some guards coming to haul them off into captivity, maybe even to their death. They fear, outside of the Sunday morning gathering, they fear their, their own employer might find out that they're a Christian and fire them on the spot, or perhaps might put them on some sort of blacklist that prohibits them from ever being hired or being able to work again. And the whole reason is because they're a Christian. That's it. Maybe in their assembly, many in their assembly, excuse me, <clears throat> good grief, many in their assembly are considering abandoning the whole Jesus thing, thinking to themselves, this isn't really fair. I mean, surely God does not want His own people to suffer this way. Were you there when Jesus was born? I mean, I never saw him in a manger. Did you see him in a manger? I, I never personally met him or saw him die on the cross. I never saw him rise from the dead. I'm taking somebody's word for it. Maybe we should just abandon this whole approach. Is this really worth it? Being fired from our job, not ever being able to work again? And in the midst of that conversation, in their assembly, this letter comes to them. Probably from the Apostle Paul, maybe from someone that's very closely associated with him. And you get to chapter 2, verse 14, and it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, he partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We see in our passage the incarnation of Jesus, don't we? It's right there in the text. That's what's in focus. That blessed Christmas morn, he says, He himself likewise partook of flesh and blood. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus partaking of flesh and blood. The eternal Son of God becoming man. But then the question is, why? The author of this book is drawing our attention. He's drawing the attention of those in the assembly who are considering leaving the faith because of persecution. He's drawing their attention to the incarnation of Jesus. But you notice, not just the incarnation. He points to Jesus' death and resurrection as well. See, when we come to the manger scene, every Christmas, we can't stop there. It makes no sense without Easter. Our minds have to be drawn to the whole story. The author of Hebrews is wanting the incarnation, the Christmas story, to point at least to two significant truths for us. And the first one I want you to see is this. Jesus assumed our nature so that He could become our substitute. He took on our nature so He could become our substitute. Look closely at verse 14. At the first part of verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. 
You got to think that the very idea that an eternal Son of God would become man seems a little silly on the surface, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem to kind of on the surface not make a ton of sense? Well, we know it's a little silly because even the Bible tells us that the very notion that God could become man and dwell amongst us and die for our sins, the author of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. That very premise is absurd that God would become man. All of us at one time or another are left thinking, why on earth would Jesus become a baby? Have his diaper changed? Be attended to by adults that he created? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The author of Hebrews spends just a little bit of time answering this question for us as to why this would happen in the verses prior to verse 14. And he's basically making the point, first of all, that Jesus did come. He assumed human flesh and was, he says, for a little while made lower than the angels. And he says in verse 10, uh, it just, if you look up in your, in your text, just a few verses before that in verse 10, uh, that the purpose was so that he could, what? Bring many sons to glory. That was the purpose. Why did he become man? So that he could bring many sons to glory. Do you get that? That his purpose was not merely to experience life the way we lived it. That is one of the purposes that he could sympathize with us in our weakness, so he became like us, so he could sympathize with us. That is clearly one of the purposes, but not the main purpose. The main purpose is not so that he could experience life as we live it, but so that we could experience life as he lived it. It's the exact opposite. But why would he become human? Well, it's not until verse 17 that we get the answer. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, here it is, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is the reason. So that he could make propitiation for the sins of his people. This is the heart of the Christian gospel message. That Christ, coming to earth, He is living a holy life and dying on our behalf to appease the wrath of a holy God who is rightly offended by your sin. And I don't just mean your sin, I'm preaching to myself too, my sin as well. God is rightly offended by our sin and Christ is coming to appease His wrath. But see, a God who is merciful and gracious and just didn't just let us die in our own sins. He sent His Son to bear the wrath so that we wouldn't have to. But then why did He have to become human? Okay, why couldn't Jesus just appear, take the wrath of God as punishment? Why did He actually have to live as a human? Well, simply put, the death penalty was given to mankind. Humanity was given the death penalty. Death is a penalty unique to mankind. It is our penalty. 
Not anybody else's penalty. It's our penalty. We've looked many times at the story in Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve in the garden as they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've just disobeyed God. And God comes in and punishes them and gives them the death penalty. How is it then that Jesus could pay man's death penalty if he wasn't a man? Only a man could pay the death penalty. That's why men die. How could Jesus possibly pay it if he didn't become a man? That's not how it works in the world that God created. According to the author of Hebrews and to all the biblical writers for that matter, he had to be made, he says, like his brother in, brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, it wouldn't be good enough that he just become a man. There were many men that came before him that were good men, you might say. Think of like David or Moses or Abraham. A host of men that came before who were good, solid people. God-fearing even people. All of them are from the line of Adam which means that they all evidenced at one point or another in their life evidence of the fall of their father Adam. So it's clear that the Messiah had to be truly man because only a man could pay the penalty that was given to man mankind. But he also had to be fully God so that he could actually have a righteous life to pay the penalty with. He couldn't just pay the penalty as the rest of mankind and that, that would just be what he was due. He had to be fully righteous. And the only way he could be righteous was that he also be God. He had to provide a God-level righteousness that man could not or would not ever have. So he had to be truly man, but he also had to be truly God. So the author of Hebrews is telling us he had to assume our nature so that he could be our substitute. But the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus destroyed the devil in the process, and delivered his people. He destroyed the devil and delivered his people. Look at the end of verse 14. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So he didn't just become like us, but in so doing, through his death, he destroyed the devil, who the author says here has the power over death. Now, it's important to understand the role of Satan. And this, this, I think, often gets twisted and, and all kinds of things. We probably give, sometimes give him not enough credit, and then sometimes we give him way too much credit. Um, but I think it's important that we understand the role that Satan has. You remember the Genesis account. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and here is the serpent. He comes in. Satan, disguised as a serpent, comes in and tempts them to take of the fruit of the knowledge of, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent, it's clear from the beginning, has nefarious motives. He, he's not to be trusted. And we know that because the author of Genesis 3 tells us that, that the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And so we, we know from the beginning, oh, I don't trust this, this serpent that's coming in. He has, he has suspicious motivations. And so he demonstrates his craftiness. How? By dominating the man and the woman and by twisting God's words. Well, well, you'll surely not die. God knows that you'll become like Him, knowing the difference between good and evil. 
But then if you flash forward in the Old Testament to the book of Job, you see the same figure appear again, and he appears before the throne of God in this very strange scene in Job 1 and 2, right? The, the Satan figure returns there before the throne of God, and, and God asks him where he's been. Where have you been? Why are you late to the meeting? And Satan says, well, I was going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. And, and we're, we're warned in the New Testament from Peter, where he says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, which seems very much like what we're seeing in the book of Job, this Satan figure roaming to and fro on the earth seeking someone to devour. But God obviously allows him to try Job. Have you considered my servant Job, he says. So it appears as though, in Job, Satan is allowed to come before the throne of God, one, which is strange to us, and present to God the moral failures, in this case of the, of the character Job, present these moral failures to him, and accuse him of sins. It's helpful to know that the word Satan literally means accuser or adversary. He is an accuser. In fact, we're told in Revelation 12, as the angels sing it out, calling the devil the accuser of our brothers. He accuses them day and night before our God, they say. So the picture that we should have in our mind of Satan is one who is an adversary, who is an accuser of the brothers, who has a penchant for entrapment. That's what he's set on. His desire is to entrap, ensnare the children of God. So he disguises himself in one way or another as particularly, potentially a, a benign temptation. Potentially he described, disguises himself as a serpent in Genesis 3 and everything in between. But he disguises himself, tempts the brothers and sisters. And once the bait is taken, he removes the disguise, puts on his three-piece suit, walks into the courtroom of God where he stands before a holy and righteous judge and he presents the evidence of man's sin before God. Here's the evidence. And he knows that if God is truly holy and righteous, then the evidence of man's sin will be enough to convict. There's no question as to what he'll get. This is going to be a conviction. So he probably says something like, well, you see, Your Honor, it's painfully obvious that this person is a lowlife and a scoundrel. He's violated your commands. He sinned against you. And because he sinned against you, he deserves the strictest penalty of the law. That is death. Eternal death. And he knows he's going to get a conviction. Satan has the power of death, the author says. Much like a prosecuting attorney has the power of the death penalty at his hands. He can charge with the death penalty if the charge is warrant. He's got all the evidence. He knows the judge is going to find him guilty. And so he goes for the death penalty every single time. But then something changes. Jesus comes into the world as a little baby. He grows up to be a man. And Satan, wouldn't you know, tries similar entrapment techniques on him. But the problem is they don't work on him. He resists the entrapment at every turn. Jesus never takes the bait. Not one time does he ever take the bait. So what are the forces of darkness 
What does the one who's entrapping, the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, what does he do when he doesn't have the evidence to convict? Well, he cooks the books. He trumps up the charges. He gets together a kangaroo court and tries him on behalf of some trumped-up charges. And he finds a, a, a man guilty that is actually completely innocent. And he wields the power of death yet again. And it worked! The innocent man goes to death. But you see, there's a problem. The sin, the penalty that Christ paid in death was not his penalty. He didn't do anything to deserve it. The penalty that he paid in death was our penalty. The sins of his brothers and sisters. So on the cross, Christ faces the wrath of God as punishment. The death penalty for us, even though he doesn't deserve it. And the author of Hebrews says that Jesus delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You and I had no other choice. But in his death, dying for us, he delivers all those who have fear of death and, and lifelong slavery over. He took away the keys of death and Hades from the devil, and he is now the sole possessor of them. And so we get this picture in Revelation chapter 12, which I think is the same idea, but it's written from the perspective of the angels as this event takes place. And I want you to think about it from that perspective. That here is this event where Christ rips away the keys of death from Satan and removes his power. So think about it from that, but it's from the perspective of heaven. So it's like heaven is, is looking on at this scene when Christ dies and rises from the dead. Listen to this. Revelation 12, 7-10. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that is Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated in Christ's resurrection. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan, Job, New Testament, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come in Christ's resurrection. Why? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So you see what's happened here. It accuses them day and night, but what's happened now? There's been a change take place. The devil has been removed of his position. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he destroyed the one weapon that Satan could yield against all of God's children. So by becoming man and paying the penalty for men as a man and as fully God, he not only robbed Satan of his, of his power, but he took away his job. What place does a prosecuting attorney now have in the courtroom of God when all of his sins have been paid for? So Paul says in Romans 8, 33-34, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So in other words, what place does a prosecuting attorney have in the courtroom of God? Every charge that he could possibly bring up, Paul says, against God's elect is met with an objection from our defense attorney, Jesus Christ, who says, Objection, Your Honor. I have already served time for that offense. This prosecuting attorney is accusing my client of double jeopardy. He cannot possibly be prosecuted a second time for an offense that has already been suffered, consequences for which have already been suffered. So then, if you're not a follower of Christ, if He is not the Lord of your life, if you have chosen to play fast and loose with this good news, this is the gospel, that Jesus died on your behalf, that He is your defense attorney. But if you choose to play fast and loose with the gospel, perhaps you acknowledge Jesus with your lips, but you deny Him by your lifestyle. Or perhaps you deny Him even with your lips. Then essentially what you've chosen to do is represent yourself in court. And there's a big problem with that. Because your standard of holiness is going to be measured up against the holiness of God. Do you think that you're going to be able to stand in the courtroom of God and claim that you are in fact innocent of all charges? Is it possible that you're going to be able to do that? Of course not. You stand, you and I both, stand as men condemned under the weight of the law. Of course we are. There is foolishness in that stance. Because you're basically saying that Jesus, who is offering His services to you for free, can go away, I'll take care of myself. See, it requires you lay down your life. Confess your sins to God who already knows. Trust in Christ as your defense attorney who stands on your behalf. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have every reason to trust. You have every reason to hope. You're constantly going to be accused of the sins that you committed every week. We come in here and we read a passage of Scripture that, to be honest with you, makes us feel like dirt because it says, be righteous in all things, and you're like, well, I'm not. And then Jeremy prays a prayer that exposes all the ways we're like dirt. Yeah, I do all those things. And then we confess our sins, which, again, reminds us that we're like dirt. But you see, if we just left it there, it would be a problem. But on the back side of all of that, there is an assurance of pardon that comes. There's a reminder of the gospel. See, if we just left it there, we'd be no greater than Satan himself who accuses the brothers day and night. Who makes you feel like dirt, even though he doesn't tell you he's got no job. He wears the three-piece suit like he does. But he has no audience with the king of kings. But he convinces you that he does, and he makes you feel like dirt. And he says, well, I'm going to tell. And you go, oh, but if you tell, then I'll be caught. You're already caught. And in Christ, he's your defense attorney. He is interceding on your behalf. 
right now. You understand that? As it happens, live. Jesus is the one that brings it up. Hey, there's another charge. But don't worry, I've paid for that offense too. So you have every reason to trust and every reason to hope in Christ alone for your, sal- for your salvation. Now, parents, if you can listen closely for just a minute as I talk in a little bit of code, all right? What could be more attractive at Christmas time to give to your children than this story? What alternative story could possibly be more compelling than this one? Now, there are other stories out there right now around this time of season that compel your children's interest. They ask for its attention. But you understand that that's the, the countervailing stories that are presented to your children around this season are false gospels. The very notion that he sees you when you're sleeping knows when you're awake. Knows if you've been bad or good. Compels them to be good for goodness sake. So that they don't end up on the naughty list but end up on the good list, on the not-so-naughty list. You understand it's a false gospel. They're cheap knockoffs. And now we've got another one that there's like a household snitch that runs and tells. It's a false gospel. Be bad, bad things come. Be good, good things come. Is that true? What if we spend as much time and with as much creativity to convince our kids of the true gospel message? What if we employed as much of our creative juices to help them understand the true gospel as we do a false one? kind of hope that's given to us in the incarnation of the eternal Son of God is supposed to do something to us, you understand. It's supposed to, he says, deliver us from the fear of death. And how does it do that? You remember what it was like to be a kid? Sail down the street on your bike and have absolutely no fear of death. You barely even knew it was a thing to jump from the swing sets as if the ground wasn't as solid as it was. Do you see the parallels? Christ defeated death. And if you're in Him, if you're His disciple, then death is no longer a fear for you. And what that means is that you can take incredible risks for the kingdom. You've been redeemed. You've been brought near to God. That little baby in the manger in Bethlehem defeated Satan. So how does a missionary then give up everything that he has to go live with a people he's never met, to learn a language he's never known, to give them news that they've never heard, only to be murdered by them on the shore? How does someone do that? Well, it's not so that he could be on the nice list, you understand. It has to be something more powerful than that. 
It's because he really believed that this baby born in Bethlehem, whose promise was that he was going to deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery, that in the end he actually accomplished that task. And that now he sits at the right hand of God, and that death isn't the last stop for me. He has to believe that, or he would never risk his own life. Why would he ever? Unless he believed there is life to come. That reality removes the fear of death now. Because I see that on the other side of death, there is life to come. Parents, I would challenge you to spend that precious little time that you have with your kids in home trying to give them this gift that there is freedom from the tyranny of death. What better hope is there than that? What better message is there than that? But you also have to live like it's true. This is part of the travesty of the last couple of years for us. There's a real virus out there, and it's very dangerous, and, and it, can, it, can, it can kill lots of people. We have to be smart about it, sure. But man, sometimes we operate out of fear. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves. All the messages going on out there has made us a fearful people, has it not? You recognize the fear around you? Maybe it's not in you, but maybe you see it in other people. Do we believe the gospel or not? What are we telling our kids who are growing up in a world where death is the thing that you have to be most afraid of? See, death is not the end. Death is the end of the introduction. The rest of the story is yet to be written for us. It's yet to come for us. Jesus conquered sin and death, and if our hope is found in Him, well, then we don't have anything to fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is for each and every one of us as we wrestle continually with fear. If it's not a virus, it is something else that is tempting us to fear. So my prayer is for every single one of us that as a church body, as people, as Christians, that we would let everyone know, our children, the world that's watching, that death is not a fear for us. That we boldly walk into the lion's den, so to speak. Whether it be, as the author of Hebrews has reminded us, outside the camp where we face the same kind of persecution that Christ faced, whether we as missionaries go to shores where we know people hate us, might kill us, or facing a virus that might be coming around, knowing that ministry must continue to go on, the gospel must be, continue to be shared, I pray that you would relieve us of those kinds of unnecessary fears. That we wouldn't be callous with our life, but we would truly seek to use it for the glory of the kingdom. That we also wouldn't treasure our lives, but we would use it for your glory. The only 
one that can convince us of that truth is you. So I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.